Here's the story of two dental hygienists from opposite sides of the world who became friends because they realized their professional lives were so in sync. One in Australia and one in America, both exuding their high passion for high-level patient care, both pushing back on legacy dentistry. If you are ready to revolutionize the practice of dental hygiene through science and innovation, join us as we are Disrupting Dentistry. Welcome to the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. Today we have Jill Meyer Lippert with us, and we are super excited to learn about her journey as a registered dental hygienist who continued to pursue her knowledge to treat the cancer patients. So Jill created a volunteer program for oncology patients, and she's the founder of Side Effect Support LLC. Jill's also the 2014, one of the 2014 recipients of the Sunstar America's RDH Award of Distinction, which is quite an honor. Jill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here with us. For having me. We are super excited to learn about your journey into this niche because that's that's kind of like a cool thing that I haven't really been so aware of in the beginning of my professional journey, but I feel like we kind of go into these niches along the way. But before we dive into that, I would love to know what attracted you to the profession of dental hygiene. I think I was just a really weird kid. I always loved, <laughs> even from being little on, I loved going to the dentist. My mom thought I was crazy. Um, I remember kids my age, they would cry and they'd be, you know, oh, I hate going there. And I'm like, what do you mean? This is awesome. I love going to the dentist. <laughs> so I think it was just something in me from little on. They, there's even all these pictures of me as a child sitting, brushing my teeth like obsessively. So um, something was just in me. So I um, always had an interest in it. And of course, once I got to my teenage years, maybe I drifted off into some other thoughts, but then eventually found my way back to it again and started out with um, dental assisting and doing some front desk um, duties while I was uh, going to dental hygiene school. And then so I've had a little bit of experience in, in each end of the office. Very cool. And then once you came into um, your profession and you've done hygiene, how did you then get interested in supporting the cancer patient? What made that you move into that niche, as Melissa said? That started, um, ironically, almost at the exact same time that I got my first job in a dental practice um, as an assistant. Uh, it was in 1992 when my mom uh, became diagnosed with breast cancer at that same time. So I got to see as a family caregiver, you know, what she was dealing with and felt that frustration when she went to her oncology team to get some guidance of what she could do to help minimize the the horrible dry mouth or the, the awful mouth sores that she was experiencing. And there was just no help. There was no guidance at all. And I really uh, foolishly thought that now that I worked in the dental field, I would be able to find all these answers for her easily. But uh, there wasn't really help for patients on either end. So it was pretty evident that this was a area of need. And uh, that kind of stuff drives me. I'm, I'm a very protective person and I want to find answers to solve problems. So when nobody was there to help um, people that really are in such a hard time with their life and they're really looking for any type of guidance and, and assistance that they can get, um, I really wanted to find a way to provide that. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. 
And what do you, what did you find? I, I think one of the things that when I talk to other people and even a little bit myself, we got in Australia, I'm not sure in America, we've got a bit limited education on treating the patient who's going through chemotherapy. We talked a little bit about they'll get mouth ulcers and they'll have a sore mouth and we definitely understood that they needed to see the dentist before but mainly do they need extractions was really what the push was, not so much on the preventative care side. And did you find that, is that the same in America? Oh, definitely. Because when I uh, started my dental hygiene program, of course, every step along the way, I thought, well, now I'll start learning more. But just like you said, it was just the overview of, you know, yes, people have mouth sores, but there really wasn't a lot of um, education of what we could do about it and really no thought about preventing it. It was just kind of that acceptance that that's just what happens. So mm-hmm. I really uh, started my education by just questioning people that were um, having problems or that had a past cancer diagnosis and getting an idea um, outside of a textbook, what people were experiencing and what type of things maybe um, either helped or made the problem worse and just started gathering that information. And eventually as time went on and of course options with the internet came available, then opportunities to learn more came along too. So Unfortunately, there's still such a divide that I really tried for a lot of years to get into oncology courses. And there are very few that will accept a dental professional to even take the course, which seems a little ridiculous. But um, yeah, finally, I did find one. And I I think I was the only dental professional in there. And they, they're fine to let in, um, you know, pharmaceutical people or um, researchers. But for some reason, there's still that divide with with dentistry yeah that divide drives me crazy I know you know it it makes me crazy makes me twitch because it's connected and this is the gateway to health and I think there's a a misconception that somehow our education ends at the mouth like we've we've not had anything more to talk about how body processes work or you know anatomy physiology when I, I don't think a lot of our medical counterparts really comprehend how extensive our education is. Right. Yeah. This is this is true. And that was one of our questions actually that we had for you is is how do you think we can integrate ourselves more with oncologists and, and actually make sure we becoming more of a team? Like what have you learned along the way that we can all kind of try and help break down that wall? I think one thing is to understand and just realize that we don't necessarily speak the same language. Uh, So sometimes it's even the terminology that we use. If we would uh, talk to our uh, medical team and say that, hey, we have this patient come in and they have an MO on number 14, they are not going to have any idea what you're talking about. So some of that is not only um, understanding of how we need to translate information, but then going that extra step to try to understand their language as well. So um, whether that be having just your own education on what some type of cancer side effects or treatments may um, involve, but then also really involving the whole team in it. And I think that's one thing that I really, um, I really advocate is that it's not just the clinical uh, professional um, that we need to have educated on this, but also the administrative team to make sure that that patient is getting that most comprehensive care Um, in every way throughout their uh, experience at the dental office. 
I agree so much with that because if it's, it, it all has to be seamless from the business side to the prevention side to the restorative side. If we're all not on the same page and calibrated, that's where things fall through the cracks. So I agree so much with that. It, and it's funny because like even, you know, integrating certain treatments into a practice, like if you're not all in that training together, and, and like for the business team, like, why do I have to be there? But it's, again, knowing the language and the terminology and being able to make that connection for everyone. So it's it's so important. Yes. And I was actually preparing recently for a webinar that I was giving about oral cancers. And so I went onto a closed Facebook group and I thought, well, let's just ask the people who have dealt with it. And I, I put a question out there to them. What does your dentist do or what do you wish your dentist would have done in order to make your journey easier or give you a better experience. And I could not believe how that post just like blew up. I thought, oh man, if my business posts would get this much attention, it's, it was amazing. <laughs> but the the patterns of the answers that people gave were just, it really was heart-wrenching of how many people felt judged, how many people um, talked about going home from their dental appointment in tears because um, they didn't, the person who's treating them or the person at the front desk didn't understand the problems that they experienced and how the long-term effects that it had. They were accused of not taking care of themselves. They were accused of not caring about their oral health when they were trying so hard just to repair this damage that was done. So it was really, it, it really hit me, you know, how many people are feeling like they're not getting the care that they deserve. I know it's a podcast and you can't see our faces, but immediately when you were saying those responses, my brow furrowed, Tabitha's furrowed, like, and there's two words that stand out that they, that they used were judged and accused. Yeah. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't want my patients to ever feel judgment or feel that I'm acute. Like, okay. So I get like, yes. What, what is the conundrum of us? Is that oh, you have to brush and floss your teeth, right? That's what we're known as always, always wagging our fingers and saying yeah. to patients, but gosh, it's just like, there's a different way to get people to be on board and own what's going on in their mouths and, and be a teammate and work together to making them healthier. And, and judgment and accusation is not a part of that. Right. No. Some of these problems are just unusual, I think, to what a lot of clinicians or maybe some of that administrative team have dealt with before. So sometimes they're, they jump to that conclusion that, um, well, you're dealing with this because you're not doing what you need to do versus maybe they aren't, they weren't provided the care or the information that they needed ahead of time. Maybe they, um, you know, this is a body process that has changed for them. Their whole saliva is different than what yours is. So you could be doing the same thing they are, but they may be having problems that you aren't. So sometimes mm -hmm. it's just that reality that people are dealing with something that is different than the next person. Right. And if it doesn't fall in the profi box, we don't really know how to handle it. And I think even just understanding that it's a life and death situation that they're in. And right. we're and you know and we're making them really sick trying to heal them. So if they don't feel they can physically brush their teeth that day, it's actually okay because they're dealing with something. They're trying to climb Everest sick. Like that's what they're doing. Like right. you know, like we've got to be understanding if there's days missed, it's not out of a, a want. Like you know, not wanting to do it. It's maybe sometimes they physically just 
can't get off the bathroom floor because they're so sick. Like, and just having that compassion that they're having a life and death moment. And, you know, yeah. they don't care about their but they can't think about them today. <laughs> like, right. And I think you hit the nail on the head. It's compassion and it's dignity. Um, yeah. And that is something that's so important to keep in mind for, for people that are, are dealing with a, a diagnosis at any point, whether they're in the process now or if it's something from the past, because that not only takes a physical toll on them, it takes an emotional toll. And um, we need to be aware of that. Yeah. yeah. So I have a question. So obviously you've had a personal, um, you, you know, with cancer being in your family, so that really drives that passion. But how do you take that personal passion of wanting to help your mom and making sure you helped your patients to your support? Um, business and to and to what you set up and do you want to kind of explain how you got there and what and what your what your business is sure well um after my mom went through her treatments and then I got to gather a lot of information and, and that interest kept growing uh my dad ended up being diagnosed with cancer as well and he actually had two different types of cancer but uh the second type that he um got was Hodgkin's disease and Hodgkin's disease is considered a pretty treatable cancer. It is considered curable. Um, but the type of treatments that he had to, to get, um, what would have cured one person was too much for his body to take. So we were actually um, given the option at some point that, I mean, he was so sick and it was just a constant like, oh, we're in the hospital again, over and over and over, um, that the doctor said, we can continue the treatments and he will most likely die from the treatments or we can stop them and just let the cancer take its course and hopefully can have a little bit of quality to his life that he's got left. So after a very little bit of family discussion, that was the, that was the decision. Um, so going through that process with him passing, passing away, um, that really drove me that I'm like, I, I need to do something. I need to do something not only for myself as a healing process, but that's not acceptable to me that, um, somebody's side effects are causing them to make this decision or, um, you know, that people are suffering more than they need to. So after he uh, passed away, I really, I, I did a couple things. I actually um, ran my first marathon as a member of the Leukemia Lymphoma Society um, team in training. So that was, I think he, well, he passed away on March 18th. And by April 5th, I signed up for my, my first marathon. And then I, um, just delved into that for the next eight months to raise money and awareness. And after that was done, I'm like, okay, now what? I have to do something more. So I created a volunteer program at the oncology center where he had received his treatments. And I created these little goodie bags where everybody who started chemotherapy or radiation in the head and neck, um, they were given a bag on the day of their treatments and they could go home and they had products they could start with. They had information of things they could uh, do to possibly prevent or manage the problems. And I kept, I started that in 2006 and I kept it going pretty strongly until 2010. And then by that time, the financial climate was changing and all of a sudden they were, I wasn't getting the samples I needed to <laughs> make the program go yet. So hmm. the kids are getting smaller and smaller. And by 2012, I didn't really have any enough to keep them stock. So I had to either discontinue it and um, that just broke my heart, the, the thought of doing that. So uh, knowing that this was a, not just a local need, this was a, a very wide need out there, I decided to um, just try to expand the reach. And that is when I formed it into 
a business rather than a volunteer program. And there was a couple of thoughts behind that is I wanted to be uh, self-sustaining. So I didn't want to be dependent on donations to make it happen. Um, I didn't want to be dependent on companies that said, okay, I'll give you this product. And I thought maybe that's the, not the best product for them to use. I want to be able to be pick, you know, to pick and choose and have some discretion over what they would be provided. Um, and then have more of a central hub. I wanted to create this resource that I at one time wanted so badly to have. You know, I, I always thought, how how could this not exist out there? It seemed ridiculous that um, somebody didn't create this already, but I kept looking and I, I never found one. So I'm like, well, why don't you create it? So <laughs> that's pretty much how that came about. That's amazing. First, I want to say I'm sorry for your loss. And I am sure that your father is smiling down at you and so proud of what you've accomplished and how I just want to recognize how you took a situation and you found positivity and you didn't allow that circumstance to bring you down. It it created that drive in you to create something so spectacular and so needed. So I just want to commend you for that. So thank you so much. Thank you. Yes. Round of applause <laughs> to you. That's yeah. amazing. And you gave me the chills when you were talking about what you did after that and how you did it. It's like, literally, I went like, Oof, you just gave me the chills. So it's amazing. Very, yeah, really, really. And I think so, yeah, I really like what you're talking about not relying on the donations so it can actually happen and it can be the right products and it's not just what someone would give for free so I think that you know making that change as hard as that might have been is actually better long term for everybody and I think there's sometimes some misconception about you know what a nonprofit is versus a business and you know I it doesn't mean that you know people are being gouged and it doesn't mean that people are you know, it's just like like somebody buys soap or <laughs> you know laundry detergent. It just provides them a resource, so they have the convenience of having things that are vetted for them. They have the convenience of it being delivered to their door, um, and then it's a nice uh, opportunity also for medical professionals or dental professionals to use as a resource for their patients and say, "Hey, you know." I see you've got a lot of dry mouth. And, and some, the nice thing is it actually works for people outside of the cancer um, realm too. So all your dry mouth patients, your burning mouth syndrome patients, people that have canker sores, you know, mathis ulcers, things like that. There's, there's an option to say, hey, you can go here and, and this is a place that you can find some things. That's so amazing because they're, they're already worried about so many other things. Right. You have now taken that off of their plate and here you go. This is what you need. This is how you use it. And this will help you as you're fighting for your life. And you know, that was one thing that when my dad started his treatments, of course, I was real curious. I, we get this big three ring binder and we bring it home and I'm like, okay, what does it say about the about oral side effects or oral care? And I, I just remember paging and paging, paging through. And it was like page 26. There was like one little paragraph on it. And I'm like, that's not realistic for people. Um, you know, it was even something I was interested in and searched for. And it was hard for me to find. So somebody that just comes, you know, home with treatments and is dealing with this for the first time, it, it's unless you have something separate for them to take home and try using right away. Because I actually have... And I'll just show you, ladies. I actually have like my more modern um, version of oral care kits. That it's nice that you know clinics or whatever can put together these things and provide these for patients. Mm -hmm. And 
it allows them to just simplify it and start on something and see if it works for them because everybody's different. And sometimes it's just trial and error to see what works best for them. Right, right. Can you tell me a little bit about how when we were discussing when patients were feeling judged and accused and how their saliva can change during like having chemo? Can you talk a little bit to that and like just teach our audience about how what changes can occur? Part of it is, you know, not only with chemo, but head and neck radiation and things like that. And I'll just touch on the radiation first. That is something that uh, when people have the exposure to the radiation to their salivary glands, it is the um, more serous glands that are affected more so than the mucus producing glands. So the whole consistency and um, the elements in their saliva changes. So it's not only the quantity of their saliva, it's the quality. So somebody may actually say, I don't feel like my mouth is that dry. I actually feel like I'm you know, drooling a bit more. But their, their saliva doesn't contain all those healthy elements that aid in remineralization and wound healing and um, infection pre- prevention and all those types of things. So sometimes it's deceiving what you're seeing on a um, visually in there or what they may feel like they're experiencing. But if you actually break down the quality of that saliva, it's not protecting them the way that it would otherwise. Wow. So, yeah. And we're so like, all I feel that we get inundated with as dental professionals pertaining to this patient population is dry mouth, dry mouth, dry mouth. There's so much more there, you know, and the dry mouth has a huge effect on so many levels, but there's, you know, there's the oral mucositis, which um, is a huge reason that people have to either delay or alter their treatments in some way. And, when you are given a treatment plan, it's very specific because that's what has been determined to get the best results for your specific type of cancer. So every time you delay or alter that treatment plan, you've lessened that person's ability to get a positive result. Mm -hmm. And oral mucositis can be one huge reason that that happens. Uh, There's uh, osteonecrosis of the job, either from radiation or from medications. And that is really an interesting uh, subject. I have a um, an article coming out in RDH magazine in April that talks about um, medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaw because there is, I, I wholeheartedly believe we're going to be seeing a lot more cases of those because of certain types of targeted treatments that are being used in cancer. They're getting amazing results with how they're treating the cancer, but that is um, a risk for them too. Um, even people that have bone marrow or stem cell transplants, there's a disease called graft versus host disease. There's there's so many different things that can play a part with oral health. Wow, it's it's again, it's so it's all integrated. The body and the mouth are not separate entities, and we need to really drive that that our our profession and medicine. We need to somehow marry this this these two things together because for some reason we've just for hundreds of years, hundreds of years segregated them and we have to bring them together. I think we learn a lot about patients who have cancer in their actual mouth rather than cancer in the rest of their body. And so we get drummed into us about the dry mouth and the saliva changing for patients that are getting head and neck radiation, but not really how the chemo and how you're mentioning the whole body. Do you think with your experience of dealing with a lot of patients who have had chemotherapy, that that saliva alters for life after that, or is it just during that time? I think for most of them, it's during that time, but um, it's the realization that for 
a lot of people, they aren't necessarily going into a cancer diagnosis completely healthy in other ways. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times there's other medical conditions that they're dealing with and there's other medications. Uh, so uh, just as an example, um, you may have somebody that um, a lot, well, let me really reframing my train of thought here. Um, sometimes there's other medications that are used along with cancer treatments that are used in addition to chemotherapy. Um, so like a, a steroid, like a methotrexate sometimes is used that helps to reduce nausea. It helps to um, keep uh, patients from um, losing weight, um, keep their appetite up, but that can actually affect um, their uh, ability to prevent infections. It may make them more susceptible to periodontal disease. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes even dry mouth can be a part of that. So sometimes there's different medications. Um, it's just very specific to their needs, even like breast cancers. Um, if you're diagnosed with breast cancer, one of the first things you're gonna do is test that tumor to see if it's hormone receptor positive. And if it is, they will give you medications to suppress hormones. Well, you need those hormones to have healthy bone remodeling. Um, and so that makes you more susceptible to periodontal disease um, that can come along with dry mouth issues. There's, there's just such a complex web, I guess, with all these different meds that, that can really play a, a role and kind of compound the issue. So what I'm learning here is I don't know enough. Yeah, <laughs> I feel the same and way. Painfully un undereducated is what I'm finding out very quickly. And I'm feeling that some of our listeners are probably going to feel the same way as Melissa and I are feeling right now. Like, okay, you know, I don't know a lot about changing the hormone receptors and how that affects, you know, like, so how do we get more information? So do you run CE courses from your website? Like how can we get an, a course that really helps us upskill and level up so that we are providing our patients with better care. Yes. And that is, and I, and, um, I offer continuing education on my specific website. I do not have a recorded course available on there, um, but I do have the ability to um, provide courses. I do have um, many times where I'll have an office that will say, okay, I want you to do a presentation for my entire staff, get us all on the same page. And I found that um, I can do like one hour, two hour, three hour, one hour just doesn't seem like enough. Two yeah. hours is pretty good. At least gives you a good baseline. Once I get to three hours, I tend to see people's eyes glazing over <laughs> and then I'm losing them. So um, that I'm not always thinking that's a good idea. But um, I do also besides running um, or running uh, side effect support, I also do work with custom dental solutions as a community relations um, manager. And through the custom dental solutions site, we do have a learning center. And I do have one course on there. And that is my goal is to start adding more courses that are going to be more specific to certain types of um, issues that are involved with oral oncology. That's so awesome. you'll need to give us a link and we'll, we'll put that up for people as well so they okay. can find it. Yeah. yeah, we'll we'll put all this information in the show notes. Um, yeah. Can you tell me your, like what, I know not everybody fits in the same gap, but what, what are the products that you're going to give for a patient to at least try as they're going through their treatment? Uh, one, and some of these are just so simple. They're almost ridiculous when you think about them. But um, one thing is an extra soft compact head toothbrush. Uh, that is something that's going to allow patients to 
remove the maximum amount of the bacterial biofilm while being as gentle as possible to the gum tissue. Um, we have to keep in mind that during their treatments, uh, their blood cell counts typically drop really low at different areas at times of the treatment. So that means they're more susceptible to infections. That means they're more susceptible to uncontrolled bleeding. So we have to make sure that they're keeping that bacterial load down um, without causing tissue trauma at all. Uh, so there are the extra soft brushes. There are the post-surgical brushes, which are almost like a baby's hairbrush. Those are a really good idea. So just depending on what their need is to give them some options. Uh, so do you avoid an electric toothbrush during that time? Do you think that's when just go back to the soft manual and kind of avoid the electric toothbrush through that acute phase? Well, and it, it's definitely um, individual of their needs, but if somebody does feel like an electric toothbrush is still an option for them, I still would recommend uh, choosing one that has a very small head and that really, really soft bristles. And even, and that is something I've noticed with some of the uh, mechanical brushes out there, they're just too much, you know, that vibration's too much. So if you've got some, one that's, um, some of them have that little sensor on there where that can tell you if you're pressing too hard, mm -hmm. that's a good idea. Um, but just making sure that it's, not going to cause trauma, if at all possible. Uh, but other things would be uh, looking at their toothpaste that they're using. Does it have uh, detergents in there that may contribute to mouth sores developing? So our, one of our main culprits is going to be sodium lauryl sulfate. Um, that's present in a lot of toothpaste, but that is something that may just push people over the edge of developing those, um, those mouth sores or the tenderness in the tissue. Uh, we don't want to have them using anything that's going to dry the tissue out more. So alcohol or uh, peroxide or, you know, tartar control, things like that, that may cause extra irritation. Uh, and then looking at um, even flavors. Uh, some people with nausea cannot tolerate like a strong mint or cinnamon or anything like that. Or if their tissue starts getting sore, uh, those flavors mm -hmm. can be just too much for them to take. And there are some people, whether it be um, head and neck radiation uh, patients or graft versus host patients that they will never be able to tolerate mint for the rest of their lives. So having wow. just those really gentle flavors, sometimes using children's flavors works, or there's some unflavored paste out there now too. I wonder why the dental manufacturing companies haven't really cottoned on that, you know, because I've got a lot of, I had, a, I was in a practice where I saw a lot of patients on the spectrum and they hated mint. It was too overpowering. And getting toothpaste without mint is really hard. And you're like, it is. company's going to realise we need to have some milder tasting toothpaste. It's too much for some people. <laughs> it it goes back to the marketing of the minty fresh. Like when toothpaste was first introduced, hmm. it was all marketing. It wasn't really about patients getting healthy. It was just yeah. a product to sell and how much they would public would buy it and the frequency and you and know, I think so. that's the mindset for a lot of patients as well, where they, um, unless it tastes like that, then they don't feel like it's right, you know? Right, <laughs> so, right. And the foaming too, like patients yeah, want to exactly. feel the studs and the foaming, or again, it's like that connection that it's not doing its job. So it's, I don't it's like tough. It. Yeah, so I, I often suggest patients get rid of it out of their toothpaste, but to learn not to have something foaming is uh, is quite difficult for them. So I have to say to them, you're going to have to persevere for a week and, and get used to it not foaming because they're so used to it right? mm -hmm. and they expect it. 
Are there yeah. any mouthwashes or rinses, like especially for a patient in that stage where they're having difficulty that like they they can't even brush their teeth and, and letting a patient know ahead of time that like, listen, if you're feeling that ill, at least rinse with this as much as you possibly can? Uh, well, and there's a really simple at-home recipe that they can make. They can take like four cups of water with a level uh, tablespoon or a teaspoon, excuse me, a little teaspoon of uh, baking soda, a level teaspoon of salt, and they can just mix it up, rinse with it as much as they want throughout the day. Um, and then, um, and probably just keep it in a covered container throughout the day. But then at the end of the day, if there's any left, dump that out and mix up a new batch. And that is something really simple that can be very soothing for them. Um, the salt can help to reduce inflammation of the tissue. Uh, the baking soda helps to give you more of a stable pH inside of the mouth. And that's something that's pretty across the board recommended for people that is an option. But as far mm. as over-the-counter rinses, um, that's something too that it, I I have different ones on my website that I, I really like. Um, sometimes formulations change. So one of the things that I'm really big on is looking at the pH of the products that you mm -hmm. recommend. Um, our dry mouth patients are so susceptible to, um, I mean, their their mouth is already acidic and they're so susceptible to decay and infection that if we are using uh, products that are acidic, we are just compounding the problems that they're having. And it's really scary when you start breaking down uh, even some products that are specifically marketed for dry mouth and specifically marketed to the concerns of oncology patients are really acidic. And um, so that I just advise people, do your research when you're recommending things. Um, find out if you don't know what the pH is, ask and um, keep that in consideration. And I have a couple, you know, lists of different rinses and what their pH is, but that's always something too, I caution uh, formulations change. So you could have a rinse that keeps the same name and then they totally change the formulation with it. Or they could keep the same formulation and they give it a brand new name just for a marketing rebranding type of a thing. So if you do see a list with those numbers on there, um, it's good to be aware of, but just take it with a grain of salt and, and do a little bit of your own research too. Okay, that's a great tip. Yeah, it is. What do you think of water irrigators for patients going through chemo? I think that's a great idea. Um, yeah. Just removing that food debris. Uh, that too, I would just be cautious on using too high of settings on there. That um, just driving home, do everything you can to be protective of your tissue while you're cleaning it. Do you know? Because Tabitha and I, if you if you know us, you know we're Airflow girls, <laughs> and the um, powder that we use in our device is erythritol powder, which has a lot of antibiofilm properties to it. Do you know of any kind of like home use of that particular sugar alcohol to help with cancer patients? Because it does inhibit the growth of S mutans. So then that could is something that I could see that could be beneficial. It also inhibits the growth of P. gingivalis and S gordini. Was there any other stab? Those are the ones I know off the top of my head. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm just wondering if there's anything that's in development for cancer patients or if there's maybe like a, a an off-label way to to be able to integrate that at home i'm not aware of anything um in development but i there certainly could be but i i think that's a great idea and that's something that um like even on my website i've got um 
gums and mints and, you know, things like that with xylitol or xylitol and erythritol that people can suck on and just having that uh, stimulation of the salivary flow while giving some of those beneficial um, sugars in there to nourish the good bacteria in your mouth and get rid of the bad bacteria um, is a benefit versus, um, you know, sometimes people are still told to this day to suck on lemon drops, you know, or or candies like that. So we need to give them an alternative um, (laughs) that can, that can be beneficial. But I, I do think once, you know, erythritol maybe becomes a little bit more, mainstream in over-the-counter type products um, that I would, it just makes sense to use that because there's even less of a chance of any digestive issues with, with its use too. Right. Right. Well, I'm very blessed to have some of the, uh, like some of my hygiene friends are just like freaking brilliant. And my, uh, one of my colleagues, Eileen Prizzy, she and I would brainstorm of different ideas together. And we were talking about our diabetic patients and then talking about erythritol. And she's like, why don't you just have people buy it from the health food store and throw a couple tablespoons in their water pick? And then they're kind of like air flowing at home. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're a flipping genius. So I started telling my patients to do that. So secrets out, people go tell yeah. them to go buy a bag of, I think erythritol in the US is like anywhere from like seven to $12, depending on the size of the bag. You can order it right on Amazon, a couple tablespoons in the water basin. And now you're, you're your own hygienist at home in your bathroom. It is some amazing sometimes. So these really simple things that it's like, oh, well, why why did nobody think of this before? Going back to what you were saying about the hard, like people sucking on lemon drops and hard lollies, I think that's a really big thing to remember is that while we in our head think, oh, that's a really bad idea, the patient may just to themselves think I've got a dry mouth, I'm going to start that. So even just discussing things they shouldn't do, not just things they should do yeah. and not that people would realize putting a lolly in their mouth would be really detrimental with a dry mouth because they're just looking for any sort of comfort and you know what it's like when you hurt yourself anything that soothes you know if you've got a burn you want to put ice on it and you know you shouldn't do you know what I mean like anything that soothes you want to do so I think talking that was a really good point I, I never mentioned that to patients but I should talk more about what you shouldn't do as well like don't don't fall to sugar to compensate this and things like that and that really opens up a whole new realm, honestly, because for people that are so susceptible to um, to infection and their, their blood counts are so low, uh, simple things that we think would be ridiculous, but telling them, make sure you don't share a toothbrush, you know, make sure that your toothbrush is not touching your family members, that it's, you know, across contamination. Don't store it out on your counter around the aerosol of the toilet. Mm, um, yeah. Don't use the same tube of toothpaste with your whole family members. You know, if, if that edge of the, the toothpaste tube is rubbing on those bristles, now that's contaminated. You can transfer bacteria or viruses from one person to the next. So it's just a different kind of a mindset of being a bit more protective. Um, I, I've really been big on now since COVID broke out, you know, the, and hand washing now is cool. <laughs> like <laughs> we've never seen before. You know, if if we put as much emphasis on oral care for our cancer patients as what hand hygiene is uh, recommended to them, I think we would just see a huge uh, benefit as far as the reduction in respiratory infections, the, the reduction in oral side effects, the reduction in oral mucosa infections, all of these different types of things that, um, you know, we just, we don't always 
make the, you know, we don't connect the dots. I guess that's the best way to say it. I agree. And that's why we love to have people like you on to disrupt the status quo of dentistry because it's got to go. <laughs> it's got to go. Um, it's, it's just so amazing how, you know, bringing top of mind again, these simple things, we can't assume our patients know anything. And I think sometimes we lose sight in the hurriedness of our day and we're trying to jam so much into our appointment time that we lose sight on the fact that they don't know. And if we don't actually take the time to teach them and have these discussions, that's such a lost opportunity. That's so much more important and impactful on their lives than scraping calculus off. That's really where that there's such a huge benefit. We're opening up that communication with the oncology team because to be very honest, there are patients still being told by their physicians um, or their nurses to suck on lemon drops because mm -hmm. that's just their mindset and how they're trained. They're not always making that connection either. So sometimes pa patients are truly going home with that as an instruction of what to do. That when you, when you mentioned that before, that was one of my first thoughts is that they're probably being told, you know, anything that's going to stimulate saliva. So get candies and, and suck on that by their physician. And that's, and we're over here screaming, no, but they just don't know any better. Exactly. So again, that's, it just goes back to this integration. We need to be working together as a team for the benefit of the patients we're all serving together. And I can't help but think too, that if we emphasized these um, hygienic procedures, even for patients who are healthy, maybe we wouldn't have the bio burden in their mouths that could turn on the DNA that led them down that cancer road anyway. It is amazing all of the connections that they're making to certain bacteria and certain types of cancer. And you're talking about different types of esophageal cancers, colon cancers. Um, I mean, the list truly just goes on and on. It is, um, um, it's, it's so interesting, but it's really scary at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I read this great book a few years ago. Um, it's called The Superhuman Organism. And I learned that, you know, our microbiome is so much more prominent than our own um, mammalian cells. So we're basically living with the microbiome more than they're living with us. <laughs> And it has like, so it impacts you in so many different ways. And it's just like, I'm just at the iceberg of this knowledge. Like I just want to like suck it all up because it's so, it's just so amazing how it's so all connected down to the foods we're eating to the way our depression, gut issues. Like it's tremendous. Your sleep, it, it just goes on and on and on. And these are things that I really feel that we need to be discussing with our patients, but the way our current system of dentistry is set up, it doesn't allow us the time to do it. Right. I think, you know, if we start looking more to what can we do oral care wise that we're nourishing those good bacteria, whether it be through arginine or, you know, um, any of those types of substances, rather than thinking, okay, we're just going to kill everything <laughs> because right. we're not doing any favors for people at that point either. So, you know, you, you definitely don't want to have somebody coming in uh, that's going to go through treatments and like, well, we'll just put you on chlorhexidine because we'll just wipe everything out. You're not doing them any favors by doing that. And that's actually recommended against. Yeah, I'm so glad that you said that because there's so much science to support all these things, but we seem to, to fall back on the old way of doing things, you know? Yes. And I think I'll just bring up when you talk about the old way of doing things, um, 
one type of rinse that is so commonly used with uh, during cancer care is magic mouth rinse or the mixed medication mouth rinses. Yes. And there are so many different uh, recipes to it, but the majority of them have like three main ingredients, which is going to be a coating agent like a malox, a milk of magnesia, you know, something like that. Um, a diphenhydramine, which is an antihistamine or anti-inflammatory, and then some type of an anesthetic like a viscous lidocaine. And this is such a standard type of a rinse that is used for people, I mean, throughout the world that are going through cancer treatments. And it, it is just, it's just so frustrating because so many people have um, so many side effects from that. They have stinging of the tissue, burning of the tissue. Some people have diarrhea. Other people have constipation. Sometimes there um, are clinics that are automatically adding an antifungal in them, whether they have um, thrush or not, just as a preventive thing. Well, antifungals have sugar in them. So you're taking these dry mouth patients, you're adding all these side effects to it. Um, you're numbing the tissue. So they're going to be more likely to injure themselves and initiate some of those mouth sores. And then you'll give them something with sugar in it on top of it. So there's, there's a lot of things that are just done automatically rather than doing according to that person's specific needs and looking at, you know, just taking a step back. Are we really doing them any favors or are we just masking the, you know, the problem that's at hand right now? Yes. And you know what I love that you said earlier is that you got curious about things. And I think that we don't always look at that in a way that it's okay to be curious. It's okay to ask questions. It's not questioning. It's just asking questions. Is this like you just said, is this the best product for the result we're trying to reach for this particular patient? Like we, I just like my approach with care for patients is I want to make it as easy for them as possible. So it fits in their world so that they can reach the outcome that I know that they need to have. And I feel like when we rely on these like legacy protocols and these old way of thinking and old way of doing things, we're not always delivering them the best, but it's just the way it's done, but it's okay to be curious and it's okay to ask questions and it's okay to disrupt it. And, yeah. and go outside the box and, and try some new things. And, and you know, I, I think transparency is such a beautiful thing. If you could say to a patient, you're experiencing this. I just learned this product does this. Do you want to give it a try? And we'll see what kind of result you get. And if they come back and it didn't really work, okay, great. We learned that it didn't work. Let's try something else. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that they enjoy being part of that learning journey with you. Everybody is different. That's the thing. There's no one size fits all, no matter what you do. So, um, and I like to think of people that are going through their treatments. um, You're not treating that cancer patient, you're treating that person. So you're, you're not only, you're looking into their survivorship, you know, uh, those treatments aren't only about survivor, surviving, they're about quality of life. You want them to maintain quality of life during the process, but you want to think about their quality of life years down the line. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. That leads us actually into some questions that we got. And one of the questions was, um, we had a couple, so we put some posts on Facebook and Instagram, some people sent some messages. Um, what about the patient post-cancer? So someone that comes and says they've had cancer previously. Um, do we do anything different for these patients and how and do we approach them differently now that they've had the cancer? Is it just like, oh well, you're a normal patient again, or is there there's stuff that we need to take into consideration? That definitely is uh, dependent on the types of treatments that they have, uh, because certain types of treatments, their side effects are going to pretty much end um, when the treatments end. And then you're just scrambling to you know, clean up any damage, I guess, that was done from that. 
But for other types of treatments, the risk that they carry could last years beyond. And I think, you know, what I think of mostly are the people that are being given certain types of targeted therapies now that put them at risk for the medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaw. For them, their risks can go many years after their treatments are complete. Um, so that is something is definitely going to affect your, your treatment planning or people that, um, especially your head and neck radiation patients or people that are dealing with graft-versus-host disease from a, a bone marrow transplant. Those types of side effects can be lifelong for them. So um, for, it just completely depends on what kind of treatments that they had. Yeah. And we've got a question here from Mark Witherspoon in Australia. He's a dentist that actually owns a mobile dentistry clinic. And so he treats a lot of people in aged care um, facilities. So his question relates a lot to the people that are out there doing mobile dentistry and going into aged care. And he wanted to know if you've got a patient that um, had pre-therapy dental treatment but requires assisted living, so they might be in aged care or have someone coming there, do you routinely recommend one monthly, three monthly or longer? Like how often would you be going in and, and seeing those patients as they're going through treatment? If they're going through treatments, um, the first thing is, is you have to have the approval from the oncologist to see them. Uh, at times, their um, blood counts may be to a level that it's unsafe to treat them. And there are um, certain types of treatments that they will say that you cannot have dental care unless it's more of an emergency situation until you are completely done with it. So a bit is going to, and I, I hate to be so wishy-washy on these, but for those two, it's going to depend on the type of treatments that they have. But I think it's also dependent on their current state of oral health. Um, you know, somebody that already has a really healthy mouth isn't going to require that type of real frequent follow-up, even if it is a long-term care type of thing, you know, where if they've always had a really healthy mouth versus somebody that's just a train wreck to begin with, um, it's going to require more frequent um, care for them and also their own motivation level. So, I realize people in long-term care sometimes don't have the ability to, to do some of these things on their own. But um, for those who are, are they motivated enough to follow through on cleaning their, their mouth? Are they motivated enough to, um, you know, to, to do what they need to do? And if not, then maybe they do need that extra help to get it done for them. Or and had dexterity could become an issue yeah, exactly. as well. He had another question as well for patients that haven't done the pre-therapy. So you get someone that turns up, they um, haven't come beforehand because they either weren't told, which happens all the time, or it just happened so quickly they didn't get in somewhere. And then they've been told they can't have a clean because they're in one of those cases where they're not allowed to, but they've got calculus over there, they've got swollen gums, they've got a sore mouth. What can you do for that patient that can't go into debridement Beside, you know, is there anything besides just giving oral hygiene instructions as a, a mouth rinse or a, a topical aid that you'd really recommend in that kind of situation? I think it is really giving them that uh, modified oral hygiene instruction, um, making them just the, the information that they understand that it's important. I think that's a whole new mindset for somebody that already has a oral um, oral condition to that point. Um, so doing the the um, gentle removal that they can do at home, but then like you mentioned, the oral irrigators. Um, and then 
that that really it is a tough question. Um, unfortunately, there's probably not going to be a real blanket answer yeah. for that. But um, doing just the best they can, and there might be times where um, you know the the oncologist may say if you consult with them, hey, you know we we just don't feel like they um, are responding well. There's a lot of infection that's happening. They may say let let's take a break from this. Let's get some of this cleaned up. And then maybe their body will react a bit better that they don't have that infection kind of running through their system to give them a better result or response to the, the treatments. Yeah. Amazing. Well, really has to be working together though. That's absolutely. The I think that's the theme here is yep. that we need to integrate medicine and dentistry. Yeah. A hundred percent. I've really enjoyed today's talk. Thank you so yes, much. Thank, thank you. you, Jill. So if our listeners want to check out some of the uh, things that you have to offer, Jill's website is sideeffectsupport.com. You can find Jill also on Twitter at support underscore Jill. And she is also available on Facebook at Side Effect Support LLC. So please go check Jill out. Um, tell her she, you said hi, tell her you're a fellow dental disruptor and you heard her on our podcast. And as always, if you're listening, please share with a friend, please leave us a review. We love getting reviews and, and reading what you guys think about our show. We love learning with you. So please keep them coming. We took a little lull at the end of 2020, but we're, we're back and we're starting out strong. This was a strong episode to kick off 2021. So thank you so much, Jill, for being here with us and sharing so much knowledge. Oh my gosh. my my One of my new goals now to add for 2021 is upping my oncology knowledge game because it's clear that I needed to do that today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited because there's more things I need to learn. And so that's great. Um, but I think you might need to quickly get a course together that we can all register for. That would be great. <laughs> yeah, you're going to pre-sell that one before you even finish doing it. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And you know what? I would love to know too, um, like how, how can we integrate this into the, the education of our students for the next generation? Because like we, we barely scratched the surface on so many things in our dental hygiene curriculum just because of time. But see, that, there's a theme in our profession, right? It's that <laughs> damn clock. But um, I think that there needs to be, you know, at least let them know that this is just foundational and here's a place where you can go learn more. And you're such a, a beautiful resource for that. So thank you so much. Thank you yeah. for all of your sharing today. This was just so amazing. And thank you listeners for joining us. Keep on disrupting dentistry. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.